Welcome back to the Raw Knowledge Podcast with your host. My name's Alex Connor, and of course, we're back with another <coughs> guest. And this morning, I'm joined by Andrew Bogut. Thank you for joining me, my friend. How are you this morning? Doing well. How are you going? Yeah, mate. Very good. Considering this weather is very British at the moment, we're, we're doing all right. It's not been the best of Australian summers, but hey, it's first world problems, my friend. So That's first of all, right. what was that? Exactly right. Yeah, it is. <laughs> We've definitely had a few better ones. I'll start off as I always do. Andrew, a lot of people will obviously recognize your name. They're going to know who you are. But if someone was to ask you that didn't know perhaps what you do and why, how would you describe that? How would you preface that with someone now? A oh, former, former professional athlete. Um, so had a long, long career playing uh, mainly in the NBA, 14 years in the NBA, and then came back to Australia towards the end of my career to try to, you know, be involved in the game here a little bit. Um, and obviously family life, um, highly impacted that once I kind of settled down for those probably that aren't familiar that, that are listening to this the NBA's a pretty brutal uh, league you know there's a lot of games um, 82 games in a season and we can be traded at any time you can be cut at any time so um, I always had a vision or a plan my long-term plan was to have kids in my early 30s and then be slowly phasing back to home which would be Australia while they were when they were about to start school so um, the plan worked out perfectly and um they won first the five-year-old started school this year and we've got a three-year-old starting a couple of years so right now um with everything going on in the world not doing a whole lot um as far as being involved with the game or whatnot i'm a co i'm a co-owner of, of a minority owner in the sydney Kings, so i'm involved in that on a weekly basis board calls and all that kind of stuff and, and strategizing and all that but um as far as what I wanted to do, be involved with some grassroots stuff, all that kind of stuff, I've put that on the back burner until all this COVID madness ends. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get onto that. Well, maybe we'll we'll sort of bit of a, a divert first. What are your thoughts on COVID uh, in respect to what's happened? Please, please feel free to share. Oh, mate, how long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> We've got. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I guess. I mean, think Anyone that follows me on social media knows where I stand. Look, I, I understand that um, early on with this piece, um, a lot of people forget I was I was part of a a grand final series in March of 2020. Um, Sydney Kings, I was playing at the time versus the Perth Wildcats and COVID hit right in the middle of that series. And, and we actually forfeited the series down to one. It was a five game series. You had to go back to Perth. So we'll kind of, you know, behind the eight ball anyway of winning that, but we, we elected not to fly back to Perth and forfeited the series because of all the unknowns at that time, right? Um, and I'll probably say that at the start of the pandemic, I was, I kind of thought that the lockdowns made sense. The whole two weeks to flatten the curve, let's just let this thing die down. I've never been involved in a pandemic, never been involved in this, this kind of a virus in my lifetime, like most of us. So I thought it's, it's, new ground, unknown territory. So I understand what the government's trying to do. But within three or four months of it, it was clear that, you know, this was becoming a bit of a farce with all the rules, a lot of double standards, all the hypocrisy, blocking <clears throat> um, people in their homes. I mean, I'm from Melbourne, Australia originally, and what family and friends went through down there was, was horrendous. So um, I just started speaking out about the double standards and hypocrisy. And I, I said from day one that, you know, I understand there are people we need to protect in the community. Let's protect them, elderly, hospitals, the vulnerable. But I thought everyone else needs to get back on, 
on with it um, because the ramifications of what we're not talking about will be much far greater. And we're seeing that now. We're seeing it with mainly with kids missing two years of school. Um, there's there's people studies out of the US, 300% increase in in kids with speech issues um, at three, four, five, six years old because everyone's wearing face mask. You know, they a lot of their verbal cues are seeing the mouth move. So I've read a lot of studies with this and a lot of shit from people like, oh, you're not a professor, you're not a scientist. No, but I can read, I can read papers. I can read actual literature on what's going on. Mental health, probably the worst time in, in the last 30, 40, 50 years. Um, going back to the world wars for mental health. Um, suicide rates are up. Um, you know, people losing everything, losing their businesses, domestic violence. The list goes on and on and on. So I saw the ramifications of that and I was speaking about it quite early and copping a lot of shit for it. But that's, that's kind of where I'm at on it. I thought, you know, we need to get back on with it pretty, pretty quickly. And, you know, once our governments also take away um, liberties and freedoms and for the greater good of a virus, you're not going to get those back. <laughs> and, and, and it's going to be a fight to get them back. And that's, that's exactly where we are right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And some, some great key points. And, and like you said, I think a lot of people don't realize the multidimensional aspect of it. Like it's not just about one thing or for example, people are, losing jobs and work it's this monopoly effect like even down to you said you know people's speech it's the education system it really does ripple and i guess one of the positives is with your influence although you will get a bit of backlash like you said you can at least have that influence because with you know the as the maxim goes with power comes responsibility or even influence you know comes power in terms of at least you're going to get a percentage of people that'll listen where you can have that platform and say hey look guys you know, regardless of what you think, here's some factual evidence. Have a think about it. Um, yeah, I'm in complete agreement. And like you said, we could probably do the whole podcast and, and then some on there. But I think it's a, an important point to bring up nonetheless as well. I want to yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, we need to do it. Uh, it. You know, it only spreads if we talk about it. If if not me, you know, who? And if not now, when? Right? So it's, it's just a conversation things. too. It's not, it's not, I'm not always right about everything I say, right? Um, I'm sure you're not always right about everything you say. We're not always right. But just like the, the fact that the conversation has been stymied is a, is a big concern to me where you can't even have a discussion about, hang on a second, what's the mental health issue of kids missing two years of school? Hang on a second, what's, you know, I, I was an ath- I'm a professional athlete. So the most vital time of my career to jump from semi-pro amateur to pro was probably 15 to 17, 18. That's when you make your biggest jumps. I mean, you do a lot of work before that. So think about it. Kids in Victoria, in Melbourne at least, they lost two years of sport. So if you're in the prime of your career, no one talks about that. So we can't even have those conversations because you're, you know, you're a COVID conspiracy theorist and blah, blah, blah. But the fact that we can't have the conversations um, where you might be wrong is, is probably more of a big concern than even having, you know, being wrong, in my opinion. Hmm. Yeah, I, I use uh, an example of like a magician's trick of sleight of hand, which for anyone who doesn't know is when one hand is doing one thing and the other is doing something you can't see. Now, my interpretation is that a lot of that's gone on. And just as now, you know, it's kind of emerged how a lot of, you know, things have come to light. You know, they've not been honest, they've been very disingenuous. We now have this, you know, Russia, Ukraine thing going on. It was, oh, look over there. Well, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Let's let's come back to what's gone on here hmm. because, you know, now there's floods and there's peoples without homes. And like you said, there's all this other thing. Oh, but we don't want to talk about that. Well, like you said, Andrew, well, we need to talk about it and we need to address it head on. So, yeah, perhaps some really salient points there. You know that. In regards to your career, I'd love to go back to the start. And again, you know, we probably streamline this in terms of, 
what did your journey look like to the NBA? Are you someone of an athlete where, you know, as soon as you could walk and talk, you were like, this is what I want to do. I want to play professional sport. Or is this something that, again, you know, your sport chooses you based on, you know, your skill sets and the way you go into school? Oh, you know what? I'm actually good at this and now I enjoy it and it becomes a career pathway. I'd love to know a bit about that. Yeah, look, I was always sporty. I loved sport as a kid, uh, mainly ball sports. I wasn't too fond of other sports like swimming and like, Athletics, I was, I was more like anything to do with the ball or where there was a strategy involved. Um, as, uh, athleticism and strategy, I loved. So I did a bunch of sports as a kid. Australian was football. I did gymnastics, funnily enough, because of my sister. I got dragged into that because parents thought it was easy to drive us both to the same spot. I hated that. Did a bit of taekwondo, uh, martial arts, and then um, I, I wanted to play basketball. And, and uh, my parents were like, well, you know, if we put you in a basketball, this is it. We're not changing sports again. Very expensive fees, equipment, all that kind of stuff. They said, if you choose this, you're not changing again. And I was content with that. Um, I always loved the game. I always put in a lot of time um, training and stuff at home, shooting the backyard. But um, it was just one of those things that obviously was going to be tall as well, which helped, but it wasn't why it wasn't like a lot of people think, Oh, my parents, you got to be tall, play basketball. It was nothing to do with that. They, mm-hmm. they let me play kind of what I wanted, what I loved. Um, and I didn't pick it cause I was tall. I loved the game. Thankfully I ended up growing a seven foot, which definitely helps. Um, but yeah. And then I was never the, I was never the, the star started kid. And I think that's what helped me get to where I am. I had, I knew I had more passion and love for the game than all the kids that were better than me at a young age. I knew that for a fact, like some were just more talented, you know, early developers, you know, there was, I didn't have hair on my legs till I was like 19 years old, you know, like I was really late developing through puberty and all the kids that were kind of the man childs were all, you know, of course they're going to be bigger and better. And um, as I went through, I had to fight and scrap for everything and got put in second and third teams at times, got cut from teams. And um, my journey wasn't textbook by any means. And I think, Generally, most athletes have those kind of journeys that get to the top. They have to have some of those obstacles and then, you know, ended up developing really quickly in the space of, you know, 12 to 18 months. I think um, it was, I was 16 at the time and developed really, really quickly. My parents got a a personal trainer for me after school, um, picked me up from school and we trained every day for an hour or two. This is on top of all my club trainings, all my other, um, you know, things I had to do. And then got an offer to go to an Australian junior team camp, um, went there, dominated, got offered a scholarship to the AAS, went there for two years, and then um, transitioned that into a scholarship to the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, went there for two years, and then um, elected the NBA draft and, and went number one. So it, it all happened in a really small window. So I definitely wasn't that kid that was like, I'm going to be an NBA player at 12. Like I thought, for me, a goal was just to play professionally anywhere in the world, NBA would have been fantastic, would have been content with like someone gives me money to play basketball, where do I sign? And then the further and further I went on um, developing in the college, it was like, oh, no, the NBA is kind of possible. And then three months later, the NBA is a genuine chance. Then it was like, oh, second round, late second round pick. And then it was early second round. Then it was late first round. And then it was like, oh, shit, you might be top 10, you know, and it just kept the closer I got to the draft. I just kept getting better and better and ended up luckily going number one. Yeah. And uh, like you said, it, it does happen like in a flash and it's so competitive. You mentioned being a bit of a late developer and, you know, having to scrap and building character. I'm always interested to know as well, you know, were there any other, you know, moments or events that 
you know, really shaped you as an athlete early on and or any habits and behaviors that you adopted that helped you, you know, continue that trajectory. Again, it wasn't a bang, all of a sudden I had this natural gift, but at the same time, it seems to me like you were very consistent in your efforts. Yeah, I think just putting time in. Um, I mean, these days, <laughs> I know they're monitoring even kids now with load management, um, which is arguable. You know, um, I put in a lot of time um, away where people weren't watching. I put in time where people were watching. I still remember, like, I, I wasn't content if I didn't get a day's working as a young fella, and um, that really stuck with me, and, and I enjoyed doing it. Um, but I remember going on a Team US, I don't know, on a USA tour with the AIS. Um, I was 17, 16, 17. And, you know, you go on these tours and you, you only have certain access to facilities because you're not at home, right? So, like, you might have a two-hour time frame at a basketball court and 30 minutes in a weight room. And once you're done, you're done. And then you got to do team stuff. So, you might not have enough time to do your individual work or your extra extra skill development or whatever. So, I remember going, we're staying at a Ramada in LA. I remember getting a basketball. I had a skipping rope that I packed with me and I went to the underground car park um, and just worked out by myself, no hoop. Did ball handling stuff, did skipping, did some, 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 you know, some skill stuff, some passing against the brick wall. And I remember this car's driving in and out looking at me like, that was this idiot in the car park, underground car park. And that's just an example of, um, I didn't feel content that I was getting enough work in while I was on that tour because I couldn't get the work in, right? Um, so that stuff, I was up out of bed two days a week before school at, at 5.30 a.m. I had two sessions a week that were in the mornings before school. Um, then, like I said, after school every day, I was, I was picked up by my trainer and then all my club trainings then all the club games. So, you know, they say, um, and I by, by no means master basketball, but to master any fewer, I think it's 10,000 hours um, of work. So that could be, be a mechanic, be a, a trainer, be, you know, a physio, whatever, to master it or get to a, to a level where you're, you're elite in your field is 10,000 hours. So you do the math. That's a lot of time spent on your craft. Um, and I believe... You know, that's most of most of the kids that make it, you know, make it to the pros have have those hours pretty close. Mm, for sure. And, and again, I don't think there's any shortcuts, especially in this stage with instant gratification. It's important for people to understand, you know, it, it doesn't matter if uh, if you're really talented, you still got to put in a certain amount of work. With your trainer in the early days, what were the biggest lessons that he taught you aside from biomechanics and perhaps movement techniques, strength and conditioning? Was, was he a bit of a motivational figure for you? Was he a bit of a leader or was it literally just someone who, who refined your technique and your skill acquisition? A bit of everything. I think he gave me confidence um, because of the work we put in. So I think it just correlated directly towards like, hey, you're working harder than these other kids. Like you're putting more time in. Um, you know, you're going to be better than them or you are already better than them. And, and it just gave me that confidence to when I, when I go and meet these other kids like that, that either made it over, made it to a team over me that I could just go and kick their ass. Cause I, I had the body of work, the foundation that I felt confident enough. Um, you know, there are anomalies, there are talented kids and that just make it without that. And that's a really rare, really rare these days, uh, but it does happen. They just, they just have it. They just have the gift, you know, like LeBron James, for instance, was always going to be a, NBA player, but you look at his body, he's like, if you built a basketball player, be, he'd look like him, right? Um, but that's a rare, rare specimen, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, we just put, put the work in and he was, you know, he was from the former Yugoslavia, half Croatian, half Serbian, like my, my, my whole family's from Croatia. So he had that Balkan mentality of, of, of losing his shit and kicking balls and abusing me at times and all that kind of stuff, which was good. I'm not saying it in a bad way. 
and but just gave me that confidence that I, I truly felt that I had the body of work. And I think um, that's what really made me make that next jump of like, like nah, like putting way more work than you. You might be, you might be the household name in Victoria or Australia, as far as everyone knows who you are, because no one knew who I was. I popped up out of nowhere, um, but I'm still gonna kick your ass. So that was that was kind of the biggest thing he gave me was that confidence, that push of like you've done the work. Mm. Yeah, it's it's important to have these people in the early stages. They generally mold us, not always make or break, but it it is fascinating to me the people we surround ourselves with in general, but even in the early days of that journey. So moving on, you know, the NBA, can you describe to us how you felt when you got announced or when you got chosen to be part of the NBA? And maybe for people who, you know, are unaware, they've never competed or they've not been on a stage. What does that feel like when you stepped out on the NBA? Was it, you know what, this is now just another game? Or was there another feeling? Was there a different presence stepping on the court with those elite athletes, you know, in that arena with the people, with the crowd? I imagine it's pretty invigorating. Yeah, look, there's there's pros and cons. Like going number one, um, it's, I, I said history. It was the first Australian ever to go number one in NBA NBA draft history, and obviously a few have done it since then. Uh, ben Simmons, Kyrie, you can kind of count as Australian because he was born here, but he's probably more American, um, playing for the team USA and whatnot. But yeah, I think that was definitely an emotional moment, just knowing everything that I went through through my journey, the ups and downs, and the roller coaster ride of juniors and. You know, I was told it numerous times, you've got an attitude problem, you're never going to make it, blah, blah, blah. And um, I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't kind of convey my passion for the game always positively. I'd show on my face. Like if someone was on the team was not playing team basketball or coach playing favourites, you could tell I'd be, you could tell I was pissed off at 12, 13, 14. And that's taboo in Australian culture. Like, oh, look at that kid. He's got a bad attitude. It's like, well, no one really... Um, as a coach, your job is to, I want those kids 10 times out of 10, right? I want that kid because I know that they're passionate about it. If I can just get them on the, back on the tracks, sometimes they get off, I, I went off track sometimes, I'm not going to lie, but if you can get a coach that can get you back in line, take that kid 10 times out of 10 rather than the kid that are going to be like, come on, mate, like we have to go work. Come on, come on. You know, constantly doing that as a coach is way worse. So I'd rather the once a, once a fortnight blow up where you're like, this kid's gone off the rails, got to put him back on. That every day having to tell someone, come on, we got to do the work. So getting a num- pick number one was all that work. So I was emotional. But then, you know, two or three days after that, I'm like, I've got a target on my back now. Like I've got, I've got guys, American guys in college, whatever, that are pissed off that I went one. Everyone's trying to kick my ass. So I always had that um, kind of mentality that i got to kind of, you know, go out there and be ready to fight a lot. And, and that's exactly what, what it was like the first couple of years. You know, guys are going to test you you know, give you cheap shots, try to hit you, see what you're made of, all that, and just see what you really like and see if you're going to fold. And, and I've seen, you know, a lot of guys, you know, be out of the league in a couple of years that have been high picks um, because of that. And I've seen a lot of guys excel the other way. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a tricky one. You want to enjoy it, but you don't want to enjoy it too much because at the end of the day, you haven't played a game yet. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, easy, easy to get lost in the moment. And like you said, a lot of pressure uh, there as well to, to be on that platform. What are some of you know the the misconceptions you think maybe people have about not just the NBA but even playing at that level? You, you mentioned some things there, you know what goes on behind closed doors. I know there's a few series now, but you know it's TV at the end of the day. For example, one of my main passions is Formula One. You know we've got Daniel Ricciardo on there now, and you know we're seeing behind the scenes of Netflix, and now that isn't always true because we know how people like to cut and edit things together for entertainment, but. 
you know, what are some things that people wouldn't expect about the NBA that you experienced that maybe shocked you? Not in a bad way, could be, but also in a good way. Like, for example, it could have been the way the team was run. It could have been the way you were looked after between games, things like that, that people just are completely oblivious to that perhaps watch the game and should know. Just a quick one, guys, before we carry on with the podcast, for any of you who are interested in taking your health and physique to the next level and you want to remove the guesswork, you're not quite getting the progress that you want, you're not seeing what you want to see in the mirror and you're not feeling like you're really moving in the right direction, then click the link in the bio below the apply button where you can contact me we can organize a free consultation no obligation and discover whether it's a good fit as coach and client all right back to it our laundry list man there's there's so much um look they do they do look after us very well we fly charter everywhere um you know they really really take care of us most teams do some teams cheap out a little bit but it's still a pretty good level but some teams like Common State when I was there was phenomenal. Um, the best food money can buy after games, you know, catered the best restaurant on the road. We stayed at the best hotels, chartered flights, physios, masseuses, whatever you want, they'll take care of. So the level of care um, is amazing. They really try to make sure that you're taken care of and that you don't have any worries um, outside of show up to training, train hard and play hard um, at games. But I think the biggest Negative is, is just the business of, of basketball. Um, you hear it all the time. It, it is a business, and and it's cut it's cut for you know as, as soon as as soon as you're past your use by date. Um, generally, there's a few anomalies that, that might get a pass if they're absolute legends, but generally they they're going to spit you out as, as quickly as you can um, and move you on for someone better or someone half better or better prospect, and that's just the reality of it. So you, you kind of those relationships with with people. Um, can be hindered a little bit because you've got a coach telling you they love you or a GM, you're our guy, and then you might do your knee or you might get hurt or you might be out of form and then a year later you're gone. So then you're like, hang on a second, was that relationship really there? Were they just telling me that because I was playing well at the time? And, and a lot of times the answer is yes. And you just got to understand that, that that's just a part of a part of how brutal the industry is. And, and you see a lot of players get caught off guard by it. And it can, it can be um, emotionally tolling for people that, thought someone was their really good friend and then they knifed them or they cut them or they traded them or, you know, the unfortunate reality of our business is that there might be a, a backup, a backup to me um, on the roster. That's like, you know, I do my knee and they're like, Oh, that sucks, mate. But deep down they're happy. Cause they're like, now I'm going to move up in the rotation. I'm going to get minutes. This is within a team, you know, and um, you know, points, rebounds. We've got, there's, there's, there's times where guys on the same team fight for rebounds because it's, if I get three, three, four more rebounds a game, that's an extra million dollars, you know? So the business of basketball really takes away from the beauty of the game. Um, and that's probably the, that was probably the hardest thing for me to, to kind of adapt to coming from Australia, where it's team culture first. And just the way I played was, wasn't so much about stats. It was more about what I need to do to help my team win. And that was probably the biggest adjustment for me. Mm, cut, cutthroat indeed. And I was actually having a conversation to a friend about this on the weekend. And I talked about, for example, the simplicity of, of life and how humans have complicated it with finance. Like, for example, you know, we, we, we take a game of basketball. The goal is to get that ball in the opposition's hoop. That is obviously very simply said. It's a lot harder to do. But then we throw in money. We throw in sponsorships, right? We throw in teams, inten- in, uh, incentives. We throw in favoritism. We throw in racism. All of these things. And now it's this 
unfortunately, like you said, it's not the team culture that perhaps we played for. But as you rightly said, and I think a lot of um, a lot of leaders that I follow, you know, whether it's in Formula One teams, whether it's in the NBA, whether it's in you know the FA Premier League, it's really interesting. They talk about the like, look, we cannot lose sight that this is a business, and not not in a negative way, but it's like we have to understand that. Unfortunately. We are here to pay, be paid or to pay. And, you know, at the end of the day, a job's got to get done. And obviously a lot of things rely on this. I have a few clients who work in the betting sphere. It's unreal the amount of money that goes through on betting on sport. It, I mean, I knew it was a lot, but it's it's pretty uncanny. Andrew, I'm really interested as a, you know, a strength and nutrition coach, what the nutrition and the training was like behind the scenes and what support you got. I had um, a friend on that was was playing, you know, in um, in professional rugby, and I was quite shocked sometimes at the lack of support he got within nutrition. Like, for example, it was very vague, and it was like, oh, yeah, you kind of do this, kind of do that. I imagine it's a lot better in the NBA to a degree. Can you maybe chat to us about what support you had it within the realms of nutrition and training, and how structured was it? And did you feel that you got everything you needed, apart from obviously you talked about before you got you got the resources, but did you get the education? It's changed a lot from when I first came in the league. It was next to none. Um, and look, NBA players are a little bit different. The, the, the way the NBA works, even still to this day, is it's, it's up to the individual. The, the club will provide it, but the club's not going to overly press it on you because guys are going to do what they want to do, right? Um, when I first came in, there wasn't really a presence on nutrition. Um, even even you know some of the recovery stuff was 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 a decade behind what we're doing in Australia um, as far as you know treatment protocol and recovery and all that kind of stuff. Whereas they've jumped they've jumped massively the last probably ten years. Um, when I first came in the league in two thousand and five, it was it was it wasn't great. Um, but yeah, it's, look, they they do now. They do multivitamins, shakes. They'll try to put guys on on, on diets, um, but they, they it's not like the AFL or the NRL where they force you to do it. It's still up to the individual. If he if he wants to go and eat that cheeseburger, they're not going to stop an NBA player making thirty million dollars a year eating a cheeseburger, right? Um, so what I learned was, you know, everything in moderation. Like I, I had cheat days, so you still got to enjoy enjoy it. Um, you know, I still have my burger and fries once a week and and, and we, we were burning a lot of calories so we could afford to do that. But if you do it every day, um, that's what I tell people all the time. Like it's people go on on these diets and everything. I'm like, you don't necessarily need to go on just a crazy diet. Just modify a little bit of what you're doing. Um, so, you you know, you don't want to take complete enjoyment out of your life. Um, so if you're, you know, just don't, don't, don't get the side of Coke with a burger. Maybe cut that out to start. Start small, right? Maybe you don't get the side of fries, have the burger and, and then maybe you get to a point where you don't have the bread, you have a, just a, a lettuce instead of the bread. Like just do it slowly. I find the people that, um, especially athletes, where they just try to cold turkey them off, off, off their diet completely, they're going to eventually relapse and just like have a day where they, you know, six cheeseburgers and 30 nuggets. I've seen it. I've dead set seen it. So, yeah, look, I mean, they, they, they supported it. Um, I, me personally, I was big on hydration. I always, always have a water bottle with me everywhere I go. Um, I'm car right now would have three or four water bottles in it. Um, you know, on the road, I've all, I'd always take, take water bottles off the plane with us into the hotel room and just be constantly drinking water and just making sure I was hydrated. Um, I was big on, on, you know, pasta and protein before games or, or some sort of rice. Um, and I'd stay away from certain things. So before games, I'd stay away from like anything, anything chilly or anything that's going to upset your stomach or give you some indigestion, possibly anything overly creamy. Um, try to stay away from that. Um, obviously, French fries and all that. But look, on the flip side, I've seen 
I've seen guys in the locker room literally eating a a crispy chicken burger with fries 40 minutes before tip off and go out and play like nothing happened. You know, and if that was me, I need to have a nap and I'd be useless in the game. But some guys grew up differently. Some guys grew up with that, getting a quick meal in on the way to a game as a kid and they're used to that, right? Whereas, you know, everyone's different. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's changed a lot, but it's it still comes down to being up to the individual. Mm, yeah, for sure. You made some good points because I think there's a lot of misconceptions. I know one of my biggest, you know, sort of realizations with studying nutrition and then working with athletes was you're working with people at the end of the day. And as you said, you're burning a lot of calories. There's nothing wrong with, you know, having these more rich foods. And a lot of the time, you know, the guys and the girls after the game, we, we actually go for those things. You know, we, we get them on the burgers, you know, we get them on the chips because we replenish calories. It gives them something enjoyable. Plus you don't want to be sitting down eating a big bowl of mashed potato and, you know, dry chicken. And, and yeah. as you said, Andrew, it's got to be, it's got to be sustainable and enjoyable. And, you know, having a drink, having a bit of this moderation in, in is key. And as you said, their hydration, probably one of the key things I think people leave on, on the table, especially as an athlete, you know, you, you're losing so much electrolytes through your sweat. So you just need to get that in at the end of the day. In, in the NBA, did you make any, you know, really meaningful relationships, any friends, or was there anyone in particular player side that inspired you the most? Or is it, as you mentioned before, to the point where you keep people at arm's length because you don't know if they're going to jab you in the back and, you know, there's all of that going on. But I'm, I'm sure you've probably made some good friends that are actually, you know, genuine people. Yeah, no doubt. Um, but, it's, you know, it's it's not – I've played with teams of 15-odd players for 15 years and I've probably only got two handfuls of guys that, I, I, you know, genuinely keep – probably a little bit more, maybe 15-odd guys that I – send a text every now and then and catch up with. And then out of those 15, there's probably four or five that will always catch up when we're in town. So it's a small group for me. Um, I think most players are very similar. Um, they generally bond with a couple of guys and they keep it pretty close. But yeah, I mean, it is it is, it is interesting. Um, especially when you're out of the league, it's hard because you understand when guys are in the league, they're so busy that it's hard for them to sometimes get back to you or whatever. But I've kept in touch. I mean, Harrison Barnes is Still a really really good friend of mine. Um, talked to him a fair bit. Andrew Barbosa, um, really a Brazilian guy. Really really kind of happy, being always smiling, fun guy to be around. Um, but there's there's a number of guys. Carlos Delfino, who's from Argentina, I keep in touch with him. So there's a few guys. Um, but you know, haven't seen a bunch of them because because everything going on in the world. I haven't been over the states in a while. But we keep in touch, and and we all played for our national teams as well. So we'd catch up at tournaments and whatever. But um, yeah, it's not as not as big a group as you'd think, but it's not a small smaller group neither. So it's, it's it's a good balance, and there's coaches and GMs I still keep in touch with as well, um, front office people, and yeah, it's uh, I think it's good just to see where people are after a couple of years as well. Yeah, for sure, it's important to keep those relationships strong, especially now you know that you're you're giving back if you like in the in the coaching sphere. Were there any players growing up that you idolized or looked to for inspiration or maybe some big names or maybe some names that weren't as prevalent in the industry? Yeah, for me, it was um, being of Croatian heritage, it was Tony Kukoc. Um, so he played for Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan back in the day and one of the greatest Croatian players or European players of all time. Just, just got, just got um, inducted into the Hall of Fame, actually, Basketball Hall of Fame. And I looked up to him just because he was – I was really skinny and lanky and he was really skinny and lanky throughout his career. So I kind of was like, you know, similar body styles, Croatian descent. It just made sense. Um, what's crazy about Tony is um, 
my rookie year was his last year in the NBA and we played on the same team. So um, he was That's cool. pretty much broken down at that point and back issues and was struggling to move a little bit, but got, a, got one more year out and it was my rookie year. So it, um, you know, it was pretty surreal to a guy that I was idolizing as a 12 year old um, throughout the nineties, seeing play with MJ and um, knowing his whole history in, in, in the Euro league and everything to then actually be able to be on, on a plane with him and a bus with him and pick his brain on things and talk to him and, um, his stories about the good old days about teams of his that I followed was um, was really really cool. Mm, I imagine, yeah, that's quite sentimental indeed. And that that in some way may answer my next question, which was there's a bit of a dichotomy in this one, which is would you mind sharing perhaps one of your most difficult moments in the NBA, whether it was on the court, off the court, versus maybe one of the biggest wins and it might not be the obvious, you know, it might not be just winning that game. You know, it might've been something small, but I always like to ask this question. I'm interested to know the things that stay with you as an athlete, because I think, you know, we, we always forget what people say, what they do, but we never forget, you know, how we feel in those moments. Yeah. I mean, for me, um, my career has been number one. I didn't set the world on fire my first year. I was probably, I was consistent. Wasn't horrible. Wasn't great. Second year got better. Third year got better again. Um, fourth year, so the 2009-10 season, had a career year. Like came out, played really, really well. Um, made the All-NBA third team, which means you're top 15 in the whole league for that year. Um, our team was starting to get a little bit better. Made the playoffs. And towards the end of that season, um, I catch an outlet pass and uh, go for a dunk, get pushed, come off the rim, put my arm down, snap my elbow, um, basically, 360 to, um, and in that injury, broke my elbow, dislocated my elbow, broke my wrist, uh, broke my index finger. And that was my shooting arm. It was um, a really, really tough injury uh, because I was in career form and it, it really took away from the way I play. Um, not using it as an excuse, it is what it is. And, you know, had had went and had the surgeries, they're like, look, you're going to be out anywhere from six to nine months, maybe more. And me being an idiot, I I did it in, I think I did it in March and I was back on the floor in September, um, stupidly. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't have full extension in my elbow at the time. Still don't have full extension to this day, but it was really, really bad. Like I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, working with the physio, it's literally, you're biting a towel and they have to literally put it into extension, you know, to, to work it. And then the problem is you go into extension this way and then you can't get it back this way properly. Then it stops here. <laughs> and then you got to force it back. So I was just doing that every day for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. Come back and play. Still played okay, solid. Um, but my, my touch was just gone. Like my touch was just not great. And I just struggled to get it back. Lost confidence. Um, shooting the ball. And my offensive game definitely took a step back. But the silver lining was I had a coach that was very defensive orientated. And he really taught me how to be an elite big man defender that I then became one of the best defenders in the league, um, interior, um, you know, rebounding, blocking shots, you know, right place, right time type stuff. But that was probably the toughest, toughest thing. Um, and told that, you know, you're never going to be the same after that. And then I had another injury two years after that where I got undercut and snapped my talus, my ankle, um, had to have like a microfracture type surgery and um, doctors like, well, what's the timeline? They're like, oh, we don't know, you know, you might not make it back again like to an elite level, like you might not play again. So it was twice where I was told like, you know, you, you might not play play again or 
the influential and, and, and I, I was just stubborn. I was like, nah, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, disprove kind of their timeline for my injury. Like my mindset was always, if a doctor said you're going to be out nine months, I'm going to beat it. Um, because that's the only thing I could really focus on. Like, um, you know, if you get an injury as an athlete, it's, it's the worst because you're out, you're out of the team structure. You miss the trips, the banter, this, that, the win, loss, the competitiveness, you're just on a bed, right? Um, you feel sorry for yourself a little bit. So I always try to focus on like the next thing. Okay, so they've said six months, I'm going to make it four months. Let's get started kind of thing. What can I do today? And the most the second part of your question was the proudest part of that was that I beat, I beat two doctors basically saying like, you might not play again and got to 14 years. Yeah, I love that. And I've noticed a, a bit of a common trend you know, with a lot of conversations I've had over the years. And I, I'm interested, I'm a curious soul, hence why I do this podcast. And I've drawn some trends and that stubborn mentality often is what serves you well. And I, I think even being a coach, you know, working with a lot of with a lot of general population, if we can call people that, I don't think anyone's general, but, you know, people who are not athletes and then people who are athletes who get injuries. And I've sort of said, hey, okay, well, what, you know, let, let's work with the surgeon, let's work with the doctor. What have they said? Any hard no's? And a lot of the time, it's very vague. And the doctors and the surgeons, you would think would have a lot of well-rounded knowledge, but they're very obviously acute, right? They're very focused on the injury and whatnot. And they're so in it that sometimes, you know, they don't actually give you alternatives. And we go, well, actually, you know, can we maybe, you know, we can't do flexion. Can we do extension? We can't do rotation. So can we move for a transverse plane? We can't do impact, but can we do maybe stretching? And they go, oh, actually, if you're not doing this, and then like you did, you know, you work around that. Um, for, for, for good, better, or worse, it turns out because it's like, the, I think the definitive thing is the psychology. You have said, no, I will, I will not accept that because if I do, therefore my career may be over. And also that's just a negative way of thinking, but I will give it my all because then whatever happens, at least, you know, well, you know what? I give it 120%. And sure enough, the, the mind is, I think, stronger in the body in, in regards and you've come back and perhaps worked on a different area game. And then that shapes you, I think, as an athlete, which is interesting. I want to ask a, a bit of a middle ground question of those two, which is, do you have any funny moments that you've had in the NBA? Anything that's just left you in absolute tears going, that is brilliant, whether it was with teammates on the road, off the road, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, that kind of just, even if you think about it, just brings a bit of a chuckle. Oh, there's, there's endless amounts. Um, there's a lot of, I've played with a lot of funny guys, a lot of different personalities. The best thing about the NBA is you've got guys from different countries. So there's different, different cultures have different humor, um, different ways of, of telling jokes and all that kind of stuff. But I've told this story in my podcast before that I had a, had a teammate named Demir Markota, um, Croatian guy. It was my second year. And we had a, we had a coach that was at the time, Terry Stotts was his name. He wasn't really a rah-rah coach, so he'd ever re really get fired up and yell and scream and um, ever really do that. He'd, he'd maybe do, come on, guys, what are we doing? But he'd ever rarely come in swearing or whatever, right? And we're playing in Orlando uh, <laughs> one night and that uh, their, their old arena was really run down. The, the lockers were like, usually we have chairs, like nice, most arenas now have nice kind of reclining leather chair, office chairs in each locker stall. Whereas the old arena was just like, they had these, the visiting locker room had um, just like hardwood benches, right? Like literally anymore. Just, so we get smacked by Orlando at the time. They were pretty good, but we get smacked without like 30, 40 at halftime. 
and the way it works in the NBA is players will go to the locker room, the coaches will meet in their locker room first, and they'll discuss what's going on, this, that, and then they'll come in and address the players, maybe show a few clips on film, we need to do this better, but we'll get smashed. So um, Terry comes straight in pretty much. And you know when a coach comes straight in without meeting with his coaches, it's going to be a cuss out, right? And he's losing his shit. Like he's the first time you've seen me mark up, like, okay, like we need this, like this is good. And because um, – you know, he's, he's yelling and screaming and swearing and, and Demir Markota um, farts like really loud. And because it was on the wooden benches, it was super loud. Like the thing echoed in the whole locker room and it's right in the middle of the one time this coach is like finally nutted up and just gone crazy and swearing. And, and it was kind of good. I liked it. Like it's about time, right? Yeah. Someone's done that, right? So then he stopped mid-speech, looked at him and he's like, did you just fart? He's like, and he's got an, yes, yes, coach, sorry, I, I could not hold in. Um, and it was just hilarious. Like, I still think back to it. And then speaking to Demir after was, he had like this kind of, he played this little game with teammates where he tried to, he tried to, he tried to fart, right? Loud enough just so his teammate could hear to make his teammate laugh. So then he gets in trouble by coach. Like he was doing, you know, all these stupid bands he doing a locker room. But <laughs> so the very next day they sent him, they sent him down to the G League, which is the minor league on a plane and we didn't see him against the end of the season but uh that was probably one of the funniest stories um that, that i've been a part of yeah that's uh, you can't beat a fart as me and my dad always says it's it's just free entertainment mate you know just the timing of it. like uh, this poor coach never arcs up and the one time he wanted to be taken seriously with a bit of swearing and, and firing up and and and, and this guy just <laughs> this guy just does that and all of his speech was just the timing of it was impeccable yeah, it sounds like that was a pretty um, – he got some repercussions for it, though, if you didn't see him to the end of yeah. the season. That was a bit rough. Yeah. He was like fringe. He wasn't playing a lot anyway. And I guess they just thought, like, if you're going to be you're going to be dickhead, we're just going to send you off. So they just – they sent him off to the G League. And then at the end of that season, he was back in Europe. There you go. There you go. Mm. Funny stories. I love it. I always, I always love hearing stuff about that. Before we get on to some rapid fire questions, Andrew, that I'd like to finish off the podcast, I actually wanted to ask you um, about what it's like being a father. You know, now that you've got your own kids, you know, you're sort of, you're on the different end of the journey. What's changed the most about becoming a dad? You know, I've got a lot of friends who are having kids and they've, they've said, Alex, you know, it's one of the best things you'll ever do in your life. It's amazing. What's changed for you? And, and what are some of the best things about now being a dad and maybe watching your kids? Kids grow up and you know play and, and do their things yeah i mean it's been twofold like so we had our first while i was still kind of playing um the hardest thing you know for a professional athlete we spoke about it a little bit before like we're selfish beings right you kind of have to be um you know it's it's my pre-game meal it's my recovery it's my massage time it's my i need all these things to get myself right for the game so my wife's been really supportive of that um before we had kids knowing that like you screw up one of those things in the routine, you're going to hear about it, right? And that's the unfortunate reality of being a professional athlete. It's very, very me-driven. So then when you have kids, um, it's no longer about you. Like, and that's, you got to make that transition as a professional athlete to now, not only while I was in my career, now retiring is it's, you know, it's all about your kids. Um, it's not about you anymore. So that's, that's been, it's an, I'm not going to lie. It's an adjust. It was an adjustment the first year or two, um, you know, with this pandemic thing, being home a lot more has really, you know, provided an opportunity for me to learn a lot about my kids um, that I was still pretty, you know, involved with my kids a lot when, when I come home from games and whatnot. But being on the day-to-day much more and their quirks and this and that, which is usually left to mum because dad's out working or whatever it is, 
out traveling and I'd be gone for seven, seven, 10 day road trips to now seeing that stuff every day, um, I think is important. And they know, <clears throat> I don't think they realize how lucky they are to have, you know, mum and dad that don't need to work right now and can be home all the time if they, if they want to be. So that's been enjoyable and, and, and just seeing them, you know, grow into, you know, they'll be growing into young boys and then teens and then young men. And we just hope we have them on the right, the right path to be, you know, um, great members of society and, and just be good people at the end of the day. So um, it's been a pretty, pretty exciting time. Like I said, um, our eldest just started school. So that's been a, an interesting journey, you know, seeing the tears for the first week or two when you drop them off and all that kind of stuff. And my wife and I try to alternate who does it and just being more involved like that. But I've, I've enjoyed it um, and I will I'll continue to, you know, be hands-on as much as I can because I, I'm real blessed to, to be able to, you know, do that. My, my father wasn't home a lot because um, he ran his own business. Like most working class families, you might see dad for two hours before bed and that's it. I'm in a fortunate position to be around a lot. So I really, really cherish that. Mm. Yeah, I love that last bit and what you said about, you know, you've got the opportunity to to be with your kids. It's one of the reasons, you know, people always say to me, I, you know, you don't stop, Alex. I'm like, man, I, I really want to be, I want to be able to, when I do have kids and, you know, you t- you can't pick sometimes when, when those kids come along, you know, like you said, you had your first one, you're still in the league, you're busy, you're doing this and that, but man, I would love to be able to have that opportunity to go, you know what? Oh yeah. You, you need to go to the game. I'm, dad's going to be there. Mom's going to be there. I'm going to pick you up from school. Cause like you said, I grew up in the early days where, you know, not my mom and dad have been great for me, but a lot of bosses that I've worked for, they're like, you know, this is great. You can achieve this. And, and, you know, I got my son, but I'm like, but you never see him. Like you just said, you get up, you, 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 you know, you wake him up and you put him to bed. I mean, for me, that's not the relationship you want. And like you said, if you've had that, maybe that's inspired you in some way to go, well, you know, now I, like you said, you are grateful that you get to spend your time with your kids and you have the luxury, especially now with all of this nonsense that's gone on to be able to do that. So I think that's great. The it's racket- always a that's the thing. Like some people don't have a choice. So like yes. some, my father didn't have a choice to, you know, if he's not, if he's at home playing with me, we're not eating. Right. But there is, like you said, there's a lot of people in the corporate world and a lot of people that how much is enough. Right. It's like, you, you, you know, do you really need to do 50 hours when you're a multimillionaire? Maybe turn it down to 30 and spend some time with your family. So I, I 100% agree with you. Um, you, you. I see it a lot um, in the corporate world and even with professional athletes where they, I know, you know, professional athletes that just don't want to retire because they don't want to go home um, and be there. And look, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's, it's taxing at times. Like, like being around two toddlers 24-7, like that'll test your, test your merit and your marbles. There's no doubt about it. Um but there's a good and the bad. You got to you got to kind of you, you got to kind of go through that kind of tough time sometimes with your kids where they're just you just like you've got a headache. They're doing your head in, and this one poos over here. This one does this. This one's got crayons on the wall, and they're not listening. And they're and just like you know you got to work through it. But you got to be there for them, right? Like you had the kids. If you don't want to, if you don't want to go through that, don't have the kids. Like it's quite simple. And I hate seeing you know see a lot in the industry of celebrities and sports stars where they're raised by the nanny really. And it's, it's like, I never wanted to, yeah, I never wanted to do that. Um, look at times it'd be lovely for my wife and I'd be able to go to dinner without the rugrats and have two hours. And we have family that can sometimes help with that. But as far as having someone that's 20 hours a day is raising your child and they think that they're mum or dad, that's not me. Yeah. I want respect for that, man, because like you said, there's a lot of people who outsource that as well and it's it's that's you don't outsource being a mom and dad i I don't think so and then you see you know the way they grow up and they are you know it's like well you weren't there (laughs) 
he, yeah, he didn't have an he didn't yeah. have an influence, you know. So you, you know, it's not a bad kid. Yeah, yeah, it's not a shock. Like it's you could see it happening miles away, you know. And then it's like, oh, they got drug problems, or they got this problems, or they blah blah blah. It's like no shit. Like <laughs> they don't know who you are. Like wow. yeah. It's probably my most difficult conversation when I'm coaching, you know, people in the corporate work uh, world and, and professional athletes. And, you know, there's me at least now 30 years old with some life experience going, Hey, I'm not telling you how to suck eggs, but your health is going down the shit pan and you're coming to me, but you're defeating the purpose because you're trying to build a life for the family, but you're destroying the whole thing because by the time you get there, now you can't enjoy it because your health's down the swanee and you don't even spend time with the kids and you don't get that time back. And you know, some people just need a slap in the face sometimes, professionally speaking. Um, or just don't have kids. Yeah, <laughs> <or> exactly. <laughs> like you said, that option is always on the table now. Yeah. Um, especially more than ever. But before we wrap up, Andrew, just a couple of uh, rapid fire questions. They're a bit fun, lighthearted in nature before my final one. So my first one is, what's your favorite food? You've got one last meal. You can have entree, dinner, dessert. What's your go-to, my man? What do you like? Uh, most likely it'd be pale vodka, pink sauce. Um, yeah, cook it myself. Uh yeah, big fan, big fan of big fan of Italian. Um, I like making all my sauces fresh from scratch. Um, I haven't got to the point where I want to make the pasta from scratch, just because it makes a big mess. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of pasta. Um, also, an old Croatian recipe called uh, essentially Simolina dumplings. It's kind of a quote unquote peasant food from from my family that didn't have a whole lot of money. So it's basically back in the day in Croatia, it was made from Simolina, which is a type of flour, egg olive oil dropped in boiling water with the chicken stock and that's your meal. So very, very simple, very easy, but a comfort food for me that my grandma used to make a lot for me and I had to make it myself as well. And another one that I enjoy. Yeah, that's just great. It's great when it's got a bit of sentiment to it as well. I resonate. My mom's Italian. It's the best, I mean, it's the best because it's peasant food, like you said, but you can't beat it. You cannot beat it. If you could, if you choose a superpower and you can make one up, there's no rules here. What would you choose? And for example, to give you an idea, everyone goes off flying. Yeah, well, that's great. That's good. And you can choose that. But then some people go the power to absorb pain, you know, and take it away. So you're like, you know what I mean? Like, feel free. You, you've you got anything, but whatever kind of comes to mind. Well, flying will be the first one, obviously. <laughs> I hate flying on an airplane as it is. So that'd be the, that'd be the um, yeah. easiest one. But, oh man, it's a tough one. Um, otherwise, whew. Yeah, I mean, somewhere teleporting probably would be the good one for me. Just be like, hey, I want to be in Croatia tomorrow for a holiday. Bang, I'm there. Um, problem is you couldn't bring people with you because they couldn't teleport. But uh, something along those lines just to make conveniences easier. But as far as like living forever and all that kind of stuff, nah. Um, yeah. I just like to get get places faster would be would be my number one. Yeah, the flashback. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that'd be, be pretty darn good as well. And uh, one of my last questions, a little bit more sentimental in nature, I ask every single guest this, and it's interesting because there seems to be the same answer, which you probably will discover in a moment, but it might be different, which is, could you identify a fear that you've had in your life? Might be one that you're living right now, could be one in the past, what that fear was or is, and what you have learned or are learning from overcoming that fear. Well, I mean, I probably I say I still have a fear, but um, I, you know, fear of not fear of flying, but like when there's turbulence, I I can't stand it, 
And the reason why is um, I never had an issue with flying ever. And I all, our plane almost went down twice my rookie year. Um, we had we had uh, one where an engine blew above Lake Michigan mid-flight, um, heard the big bang. We've all got noise cancellation headphones on, heard the big bang, emergency landing. Oh. And then the second one was we took off and the engine caught on fire. And um, what's funny about that story is they didn't de-ice the plane properly and then we radioed back in to go back to the airport in Newark, New Jersey. And the guy in the tower was like, oh, yeah, I saw some sparks coming out of, out of your engines. Like, well, <laughs> he'd radio the pilot. So anyway, those two, those two, we almost almost uh, went down. And um, funny enough, Tony Kukoc used to sit next to the window. Uh, and I used, guys used to laugh at him because he used to look outside the window the whole flight because he was, wasn't a great flyer. And he almost went down with the Chicago Bulls back in the day. And we used to kind of like, oh, what's wrong with him? We'll be fine. I'm now that guy. Um, so <laughs> turbulence comes, like I'm, I'm strapping on the seatbelt. So I wouldn't say it's a full fear, but I, I don't, I don't enjoy it. And I guess, you know, probably knowing that I can't control the situation doesn't help. One of those people, the OCD of like, it's out of my control. Oh shit. Like, and then once I really think about it, I'm like, yeah, hey, it's out of my control. If we're going down, we're going down, <laughs> you know? So um, yeah, just kind of, kind of got over that. Um, which, uh, you know, there was a two or three year period there where I wasn't great with it, but um, I'm all good now. Yeah, for sure. Especially when you've had those instances, they can certainly rattle the cage. It's like people who are bitten by a dog when you're young, you sort of go, oh, you're a little bit, how you doing? But then you, you know, it, it just leaves you with that. So if you could leave the audience with, and before we do some, some social links, you know, if you had to just give one bit of advice that would improve everyone's life every day can be relevant to your career or not. What would you leave people with? Uh, take your phone out of the bedroom. Yeah. Um, so I'm not, I'm not the best. I'm, I'm on my phone a lot, but I like to read a lot. So I don't think it's all bad. I like to go, I like to go on socials a little bit, but I actually read a lot papers citations on things you know even stuff with covid like new 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 findings from studies i'm just really i like to read um i, I like to think i'm pretty well versed in a lot of just random topics rather than just an expert on one um but one thing i started to do about a year ago was leave my phone whenever it's at eight nine o'clock whenever i'm going downstairs i'll leave my phone upstairs on the charger and i don't touch it till the morning um and just try to watch a show with the wife or talk or whatever and i think that um you know, I still have I still have a ways to go during the day. There's times where I want it too much, um, but unfortunately, with podcasting and all that, it's it kind of goes with the grain. But yeah, I think that's one thing for people. I think that can really help, and I think your partner sleeps better. Um, you can actually talk to your wife, um, which is a good thing at times, um, or, or your partner. And I think that's that's one piece of advice I'd give. Yeah, love it. I think that's tremendously valuable. Andrew, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you sharing your insights for people who want to follow along with yourself on social, but also your podcast as well. Where are the best places for people to find you? Yeah, Andrew Bogart on all the socials. So Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, um, pretty easy to find. Uh, when Instagram doesn't censor me, um, they shadow ban me a fair bit. So say things that I don't like um, and at Rogue Bogues so at Rogue B-O-G-U-E-S um, on, on all you know Twitter Facebook um, Instagram uh, all good podcast uh, platforms um, so there's a bunch of different stuff I do on my podcast we do basketball a basketball show we do, we do a 
kind of current legal topic show. We do a car chat, passionate about muscle cars and old school cars. So there's a bunch of stuff on there, something for everyone. So check that out and give it a give it a follow and listen. I'm sure there'll be something there that you'll either love or hate. Um, we do have a lot of hate listeners too, which is good. So um, you need you need a good balance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. That's uh, what is it now? Any news is good news or whatever it is, any exposure. And um, as ever, I'll put all the links, guys, in the show notes below. So whether you're listening or watching on Spotify or podcast or YouTube, it'll be in there. We didn't get to talk about muscle cars, maybe uh, one for the future, because that is a big passion as well. I do love cars and whatnot. But uh, guys, as ever, you already know, like, comment, subscribe, leave a rating and a review. And of course, we'll see you in the next time. And until then, stay fearless. Andrew, thanks for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. For those of you who are confused, frustrated, and sick and tired of not seeing the results that you want or deserve, make sure that you click the apply for coaching button in the description below and line up a completely free consultation with myself where we can discover if it's a good fit as client and coach and take your health and physique to the next level once and for all.